Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. World leaders gather in Paris today, Tuesday, for yet another high-powered meeting about climate change. What exactly is the One Planet Summit, as today's event is called? And what do those attending it hope to achieve? Kevin O'Sullivan, our Environment and Science Editor, knows all about it and will join me shortly. But first this week, we return to the United States, where voters in Alabama are going to the polls right now in an election described by the New York Times this week as the most unpredictable, volatile and off-the-rails Senate race in memory. The campaign of the Republican candidate, Roy Moore, a firebrand judge known for his extreme right-wing views, has been badly hit by allegations of sexual misconduct dating back many years and involving teenage girls. But Moore has fought on, against his Democratic rival Doug Jones, with the express support of US President Donald Trump. We can't afford to have a liberal Democrat who is completely controlled by Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer. We can't do it. Suzanne Lynch, our Washington correspondent, is on the line. Um, Suzanne, this is a special election to fill the vacancy left in the Senate um, when Jeff Sessions was appointed Attorney General by Donald Trump. Um, Roy Moore would have been considered a shoe in at the start of the campaign, and then we had all of these allegations that I, that I just mentioned. Um, so it's remarkable really now that we have a, a, a very tight race in Alabama, normally um, a, a very clear sort of Republican red state, but probably the most astonishing thing really is that Roy Moore is in the race at all, given this nature and the substance of the allegations against him. Yes, absolutely. And when Roy Moore announced he was running for this, uh, the Republican Party itself tried to stop him, essentially. Um, so back when he uh, faced the primary race uh, to, to represent the Republican uh, vote, um, the Republicans in Congress, Mitch McConnell, all the main Republicans in Washington, um, encouraged voters in Alabama to vote for the other candidate, Luther Strange. But Roy Moore went ahead, ran in the primary for the nomination and clinched that. So I think that surprised everyone. That's a couple of months ago now. Um, so once he got on the ballot then, uh, there was a sense that this is a strong Republican territory. It's a very conservative state in terms of its of its politics and that he would undoubtedly uh, win the nomination. But uh, since that, as you say, these allegations have come out about these various women, several women, including one woman who accuses him of initiating sexual conduct when she was just 14. Um, so this has undoubtedly damaged his, his uh, standing. But at the same time, the polls, as you say, are very, very tight. And this is one of the difficulties here, how to read these polls. Uh, Doug Jones is the Democrat candidate who may have thought he would have had no chance in this race. It now, now does see himself as having a chance here. Uh, but the big question is, will Republican voters bring themselves to vote for a Democratic candidate, despite the misgivings they may have for Roy Moore? Now, understandably, the Democrats have sought to exploit the scandal engulfing Moore and, and some of the attack ads that they have run have been fairly uncompromising in their message. Gina Richardson, Wendy Miller, Kelly Harrison Thorpe, and the list is growing. They were girls when Roy Moore immorally pursued them. Now they are women, witnesses to us all of his disturbing conduct. Will we make their abuser a U.S. senator? Tina Johnson. Becky Gray. Suzanne, we were hearing there the names of, of, of the women who have come forward with their stories about Moore and the, the Washington Post took the lead in reporting this initially. And as you mentioned there, when the allegations emerged, many establishment figures in the Republican Party called on Moore to quit the race. But the, the support of Donald Trump um, to keep him in really has been crucial, hasn't it? Yeah, I think this has been a turning point, really. When these allegations came out, we saw Mitch McConnell, etc., a lot of senior Republicans uh, say that essentially they believe the women 
uh, and that uh, the people of Alabama should not vote for Roy Moore. Uh, Donald Trump held his counsel to an extent for some time, initially back in the primary contest when Roy Moore was up against Luther Strange for this primary nomination. Uh, Donald Trump, on the advice of Mitch McConnell and Republicans in Congress, actually backed Luther Strange. And uh, then Roy Moore won the primary and there was a real sense that Donald Trump regretted that, that he felt he should have gone with his instinct that Roy Moore, who in many ways is like Trump himself, a kind of firebrand, iconoclast, um, completely against the traditional modes of politics, that he should have backed him the first time around. So this time he's decided to back him. So last Friday, um, just a few days before the voting, uh, Donald Trump was uh, attending a rally in Florida, but, but just across the border from Alabama. And he strongly uh, endorsed Roy Moore. He said that Roy Moore in the Senate uh, would help to get the Republican uh, mandate, the Republican policies through, and he encouraged people to vote for him. So I think this has given maybe reassurance to a lot of Republicans in the state who were wary about voting for Roy Moore, that yes, they should give him his vote here on, on Tuesday. Let's pause for a moment to just hear what the, the candidate himself has had to say, Roy Moore, about these allegations. The fake news began after I was 11-point lead in the general election. Now, I want you to understand this. The Washington Post put out this terrible, disgusting article saying I had done something. And I want you to, I want you to understand something. They said these women, too, had not come forward for nearly 40 years. But they waited to 30 days before this general election to come forward. If he gets elected, Suzanne, is, is that the end of the matter then? Did these allegations just go away or, or does this controversy continue? No, if he gets elected, um, the Republican Party have a real headache. Firstly, um, one of the reasons, and this shows the, the, the strength of opposition towards Roy Moore as a candidate, they're actually gambling on uh, Alabama voting for Democrats, even though if, if, he, if Democrats win this election, the Republican majority in the Senate goes down from 52 to 51, so it gets very, very tight. Um, but if he does uh, win this election, he is most likely going to face an ethics committee as soon as he arrives in the Senate. Uh, so this is going to uh, dominate uh, attention here in January if he does um, reach the Senate, uh, yes, A, the committee, but the, the ethics committee, B, uh, we will probably see the Republican leadership trying to move against appointing him to any committees, etc., trying to maybe isolate him in a sense. So we have that uh, awaiting us. But it, it, it's it's important to stress here, Roy Moore's past, he, he has twice been removed from the bench uh, and rose to national prominence because of that. Uh, once for uh, basically... Uh, telling other probate judges not to uphold same-sex marriage licenses. And that was in violation of the Supreme Court ruling on same-sex marriage in 2015. Um, and then also back in 2003, he erected a huge granite um, tablet of the Ten Commandments outside his, his uh, court in Alabama. And that again um, led to him being suspended uh, from, the, from the bench. It was seen as unconstitutional, bringing religion into the courtroom, etc. So this is a man who has been highly controversial and not just, you know, for his off-the-cuff remarks, for actually, you know, encouraging other judges in the state to essentially break the law. There are very, very serious allegations against Roy Moore. Uh, he's now 70. He's been around politics for a long time in the state. He's tried to break into politics before. And he's now counting on some of those supporters, particularly in the rural areas, to back him. But I think a lot of people in the country and within the state are frankly embarrassed by him. So I think uh, the message we got from a lot of people this weekend, including the other Alabama senator um, in, in the state, was, you know, let's not vote for Roy Moore. You know, let's do the right thing. 
um, and let's uh, let's stand up for our, our principles essentially on this. So the potential then for him to, to for collateral damage to the party and to Donald Trump if he's elected, is, it's, it's very significant, isn't it? Yeah, I think this is really a microcosm of the divisions that are playing out within the Republican Party since the election of Donald Trump. Uh, Roy Moore represents a kind of, as I say, a firebrand, anti-traditional, anti-conventional Republican. Um, And on the other side, you have the more traditional conservative Republicans like Mitch McConnell and even John McCain and those traditional Republicans who are who are in Congress and themselves are uncomfortable about Donald Trump. So there's a battle for the hearts of the Republican Party going on in, in, in America at the moment as there is about the Democratic Party. But the Republican Party are very split. So I think whatever way this this turns, this is going to be very significant for the party because it may mean that if Roy Moore succeeds in this election today, that this will embolden other similar candidates uh, to run in the midterm elections next year. Now, significantly, Steve Bannon, the former White House strategist, um, traveled to Alabama um, on the eve of the vote uh, to support Roy Moore. He is encouraging people to vote for him and and kind of hammering home this message that, you know, we need candidates like Roy Moore that that are anti-establishment, that will drain the swamp and that will reject the ideas of the Washington elite. So I think people like Bannon and, and a lot of his financial supporters are going to put a lot of money into this if they feel that these kind of kind of candidates on the Trump model can win, well, I think we, they're going to be pushing those candidates in the series of elections next year in the midterms. And we shouldn't forget there are two candidates in the race and the other candidate, of course, might, might actually win. Doug Jones, mm. very little was known about him at the start of the campaign. What's known about him now? Yeah, six, he's, he's a 63-year-old lawyer from the state, um, quite understated, but uh, significantly uh, he was one of the prosecutors in the case um, of the 16th Street Baptist Church. That was the bombing of the Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama in 1963. I actually visited when I was in Alabama during the summer. Um, it was one of the turning points of the civil rights movement. Um, four young Irish, uh, African-Americans, excuse me, uh, young girls were killed in that attack. And Doug Jones was one of the prosecutors in the team. Um, members of the Ku Klux Klan and white supremacists uh, were found guilty of uh, carrying out that attack. So he has been really, um, that, that association has been brought out in a lot of the advertisements this week. And in particular, he's been trying to really connect with the African-American community uh, in Alabama. There's obviously a hugely complex and and very disturbing history of racial politics in this state. Um, African-Americans represent about 25 percent of the population of Alabama, more than the national average. Um, but African-Americans are mostly concentrated in the urban areas and in towns like Mobile, Montgomery and um, and Birmingham, Alabama. So uh, the big the biggest you know challenge for Doug Jones is to get the black voters out. Now significantly, um, which is an interesting broader argument I think about American politics at the moment. One of the big issues is that a lot of these African American voters are not registered to vote, and this is going to be an issue next year in the elections as well. So I think there is a sense that maybe the Democrats and Doug Jones left it too late to try and encourage these African American voters uh, to get out there and vote, and that maybe a lot of them will not have been registered, will not be able to vote. Whereas in contrast, a lot of the Republican supporters of Roy Moore, particularly in the rural areas, are very well organised, have voted him for, for him before in state elections um, and are ready and willing uh, to cast their vote for him. And Alabama hasn't elected a Democratic senator since 1992, which I think gives us an idea of the scale of the challenge he faces. I presume he needs not just, he, he needs to attract some of those Republican, mainstream Republican voters who are turned off by Roy Moore. He needs them to yeah. actually come out and vote Democrat, not just not vote for Moore, if you like. 
Exactly. So we've got the African-American votes they're trying to tap into and then to try and encourage some wavering Republicans to vote for him. Now, within that group, if you like, uh, one is women. Uh, the Democrats down there have been trying to, to tap into the female vote on this. And second of all, the, the kind of educated, um, white, you know, younger Republican voters um, that live in Alabama, that maybe have work, that have studied in the University of Alabama, that maybe they will uh, be able to, you know, change their mind and vote for Doug Jones in this case, because he is a local candidate. He is well known and he is well respected. Again, when I was in Alabama during the summer, I, you know, I spent a lot of time with people down there. And yes, you have an extremely extremely religious, and I, I think you can't underestimate that, um, overestimate that, that, you know, the issues of abortion, of evangelical beliefs, that is one of the reasons why so many Republicans are going to vote for Roy Moore, because they believe he is uh, will uphold those values when he gets to Washington. But you also have a whole stream of younger people, particularly living in the area around Birmingham, you know, very well educated should um, have been brought up Republican, but are, you know, are getting more centrist and, and are leaning more Democrat. And these are the kind of people I met them myself who, who you know, these, these Democrats candidates are going to try and tap into. One of the things that may work better is that uh, some Republicans have been encouraged not to vote for the Democratic candidate necessarily, but to vote for, as I say, a write-in candidate, just to put another Republican uh, ballot name on the ballot. Yes, that will maybe not directly help Doug Jones, but it will bring down the Roy Moore votes, which inadvertently and directly will help Doug Jones. So maybe that might work better, particularly with some of the older Republicans down in Alabama who, who really are uncomfortable with um, with Roy Moore, but are just not able to vote for a Democratic candidate. And actually, Suzanne, just to explain that concept, a write-in candidate, I've been reading about this. Is, there, is a write-in candidate essentially a spoiled vote? I mean, you, you write in the name of a preferred candidate, but they don't... It, it is, but as far as I'm aware, in in the United States, they are recognised that you can write in somebody else's name, and this is recognised and this is counted. Um, and back in the early days, uh, you know, back I think as, as late as the early 20th century, some candidates um, were elected on this. Uh, but I think, for example, last year during the presidential election, there was a movement at one point uh, behind Bernie Sanders for the Bernie Sanders vote, voters uh, trying to encourage uh, their voters to write in uh, Bernie Sanders on the election ballot instead of of Hillary Clinton. But yes, look, effectively, it is a spoiled vote. Um, this other these other people will not really get elected in this uh, in this election. So it's more symbolic. Um, symbolic of it more than anything else. Okay. Well, Suzanne, the polls stay open, I think, till 8pm US Eastern Time and and all will become clear over the next 24 hours. Um, Thanks a lot for that. It's two years to the day since leaders of 196 nations meeting in the French capital adopted the Paris Climate Accord, intended to be a global response to the challenges posed by climate change. Today, many of the same world leaders are back in Paris for the One Planet Summit hosted by the French President Emmanuel Macron. Kevin O'Sullivan, our Environment and Science Editor, is with me now in studio. Kevin, before I ask you about today's gathering in Paris, can we go back briefly to the Paris Accord of two years ago and and remind people what that involved, what were the commitments made then and, and who was on board? Well, the Paris Accord was certainly a landmark agreement and uh, it was quite remarkable. Um, There was a few false starts in previous gatherings hosted by the UN and um, the chemistry suddenly became right and and key players like the US and major carbon emitting countries like China uh, and Europe rode in and uh, an agreement was reached. And it it was quite dramatic in the sense of commitment to keep... uh, 
global temperatures that you know the rise this century to hopefully 1.5 degrees, but to make every effort to keep it to within two degrees. But that is a huge environmental and financial commitment uh, attached to it. Uh, and um, in terms of where we are now, th- there's been a lot of progress, but th- there's a, v- a very significant lack of pace. And the critical thing about the One Planet gathering is the commitments on the financial front haven't come from the rich countries. And uh, th- during Paris, they committed to 100 billion a year. But the scale of global warming is such that it's very clear that trillions of euros are needed to really try and keep the, the temperature to, if we're lucky, to two degrees this century. Uh, based on current projections, it's likely to be three degrees, and that will have a devastating effect on on poorer countries, on, on uh, countries, for example, those in the South Pacific, where sea level rises are already encroaching, causing huge devastation. Now, I'll come back to the, the One Planet Summit in a moment, but in, in relation to the Paris Accord of two years ago, of course, one of them, the most significant things that happened since then was D- Donald Trump, the US president, made good on a campaign promise to take the United States out of the accord. It, it hasn't happened yet because a long notice period has to be worked through and so on. But what impact has that um, decision by him had so far? Well, when that happened, and first of all, he caused consternation by saying he was going to pull out and then he sort of compounded it by having this great gathering on the White House lawn to say he was pulling out. And there was a terrible sort of fear that others would withdraw. In other words, big uh, economies like India or, or even China um, but it's quite remarkable the extent to which that decision, uh, which Trump announced, um, you know, has galvanised countries and, and even galvanised major forces within the United States in terms of particular states. California, for example. Cali- California, mm-hmm. New York, uh, big businesses. Um, and I, I think that's, that, that effect has been seen throughout the world. And even China has assumed a sort of a climate campaign role that never, you, know, you couldn't have been foreseen five years ago. Um, ironically enough, then the last two other non-signatory countries, um, Nicaragua and Syria, have since ratified the agreement. So um, it, he truly stands alone. And um, But notwithstanding that, that maybe more optimistic picture, you mentioned a moment ago that um, are, are you suggesting that countries are actually already falling behind the target set by yes, in Paris two years are, ago? Clearly, even Europe, which has you know, assumed a, a sort of a leadership role with China, is not uh, where it needs to be in terms of, particularly in terms of financial commitments. And that's the key thing about today, that it's mainly focused on what's known as climate finance. And uh, Mr. Macron has been very clear that you have to come to the table with specific commitments, not only just on on finance, but uh, in terms of bringing innovation in, in, in how you, countries are tackling climate change and bringing uh, new solutions that other countries can adopt. So essentially, he's urging kind of wealthy countries, wealthy com- wealthy companies, and so on to p- provide more funds to up to the plate in order so. to help poorer countries. Yes, which would be the ones worst affected, probably. Absolutely, yeah. yes. Now it's it's more than that in the sense that um, he wants collective action as well, because uh, clearly, as I flagged, the the temperature indications are for a scenario much worse than. Uh, Paris, and if that happens, the, the devastation that will be apparent will affect every country in the world, and uh, it, it, you know some some economies won't recover from it. Um, w- one of the things I suppose people find confusing is that oh, but you have so many of these big gatherings, you know, just um, 
a few weeks ago, um, we had the, the Bonn climate talks, which I was held under the same framework as the Paris talks, the, the UN framework yes. of two, yes. of two yeah. years ago. So it is a little confusing as to why are they all back in Paris again yes. today? Yeah. Um, well, the, 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 there's a convention of the parties where where they they gather every year, um, known as the COP process. And uh, this year it was in Bonn. And it was co-hosted by Fiji, a country that's extremely vulnerable to, to sea level rise in the South Pacific. Um, and it, it was supposed to be a, a straightforward technical COP to agree on the rule book for implementing Paris. Um, but the lack of commitment on financial issues, you know, really stalled the, the process of discussing how to, to implement the rule book and actually significantly delayed the whole process in terms of negotiations. Uh, so this is kind of the one summit is a hangover from from that. Um, and I think, you know, the fact that President Macron said he was going to host this summit kind of relieved some of the tension there, particularly among developed countries who feel that there's a lack of transparency about climate emissions, that not enough action has been taken and not enough commitment financially to help those countries countries move away from fossil fuel use and to invest in uh, adaptation measures that will, will ease the impacts from, from global warming. So uh, I, I think, you know, it's another conference and uh, people might be, be a bit cynical about that. It is a lot of air miles indeed. <laughs> but I, I actually think it's significant today because of who's in the room and your big financial conglomerates, big investment uh, brokers and uh, it's about pushing on in terms of creating a green economy. And uh, it, it, we're not there yet in terms of, say, setting a price on carbon. But we're almost at that point. Macron has said he wants to set a price on carbon of 30 euro per tonne. So that, that will, in effect, mean that the polluting industries will find it more difficult to do business. The ones that are, are more uh, environmentally sustainable they will suddenly be coming come into a scenario where they will be able to make money. So there's a green market, so to speak, that is going to emerge from this. Um, in terms of financial clout that's there in Paris today, it's it's very significant. Um, and uh, Macron has been very consistent about this. He's He has said, you know, this is one part of the jigsaw that hasn't been there since Paris was agreed. And I think, you know, now he's going to knock heads together. He met members of the elders yesterday, including Mary Robinson, and he said to them, I'm not going to let uh, anyone speak unless they come with a particular commitment. Uh, so, that, you know, and he's been very consistent on that. He, he does uh, accept that not enough has been done, that Europe has not done enough. And uh, he, he feels there's much more pace required in terms of implementation of Paris. Are there other specific measures on the agenda today? You mentioned in, in a report this week on IrishTimes.com that he'd be pushing for a European financial transactions tax, for example. Yeah, What's that? I, I think that, that will be raised, but I actually don't think that will be adopted. Uh, I, you know, the, the, this has been discussed at a whole series of levels um, in recent years, going back to 2011. But it has been shown to work. It has been shown to work in France. It's, it's raising uh, 1 billion euro this year. Um, and there's very significant support for it among the sort of heavyweight countries within Europe, like Germany and, and Spain. Um, but it, do, it will have major implications for you know all, all, all member states if, if it is adopted. But I, I ultimately think that some form of, of tax for, uh, for climate uh, projects, for climate investment is inevitable in the, in the next decade. But when that will come, it remains to be seen. 
in Paris two years ago was seen as a major breakthrough, partly because I suppose, unfortunately, now when you look what happened since that the United States and China had, you know, um, come, agreed an approach even before the, the, um, that particular summit. Um, what's your overall sense now of where the world is at in terms of world uh, leaders, Trump notwithstanding, you know, signing up to the targets and, and recognising the challenges that need to be met in this um, in this area? I, I think um, in one at one level, the, the level of unanimity on climate action is very significant, but the commitment has to be there in terms of financial uh, backing. Um, and I think some countries are, are progressing more than others. I'm afraid Ireland is not in the sort of the, 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 the top league in terms of addressing climate change yet. Um, and it's very interesting to see what those sort of global leaders are achieving already in terms of the adoption of, of renewable energy, in terms of deployment of solar energy, wind energy, um, and getting a tangible return for it. And and uh, in many instances, it's, it's it's beginning to boost their economies, but it's very uneven. And I think, uh, you know, not only the one plan, some, some but others over the next year w- will be really important in, t- in, t- in terms of galvanizing more meaningful action. There's very clear indications from the science that more meaningful action needs even needs to be taken uh, in in the next two years up to 2020 when um, Paris formally kicks in because of the way the climate is responding. And like we've had an awful year in terms of hurricanes, in terms of storms that even have affected Ireland in an extreme way to sort of underline that, that the clock is ticking. And where is Ireland falling down in particular? What should we be doing that we're not doing? Well, the, the one difficult thing for Ireland is um, it's unique in Europe in the sense that it has a very high level of agricultural emissions. So it's very difficult to really turn the, turn the tide on carbon emissions. Um, but it hasn't uh, decoupled emissions with a growing economy. And uh, that's becoming a big issue in, 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 the, in the European context. And increasingly, it would become an issue in the global context, given the, the level of commitments that others are achieving. So that, that, that is a problem uh, and, you know, any independent evaluation has confirmed that we, we, are, we are not uh, where we need to be on climate change. On the other hand, I think the last six months have been very interesting. The government have got some momentum with policies. Um, they've announced a national mitigation plan. They're about to announce a nat- national adaptation plan in terms of adjusting to the impact of global warming. And... Um, there's new incentives in place to support renewable energy, uh, particularly in relation to heat. Um, and we, we're going to ban smoky coal uh, throughout the country, which is a European first. So, th- so there's very good things there, but it's been a long time coming. And uh, uh, again, the pace issue arises. Um, I, I think it, it's very clear that the appetite for adopting meaningful actions on climate change is there and the citizens assembly process really confirmed that and really put it up to the government and when you say kevin that ireland faces kind of particular challenges in terms of agriculture um what exactly do you mean by that well firstly we're unlike most other european countries we don't have a lot of really heavy polluting industry uh, so our emissions are sort of skewed on the agriculture front and farming accounts for a third of our carbon emissions and um the trouble is that we have a very strong dairy industry and, a, and, a, and we are a global player in, in beef production. So the emissions to, to those particular sectors are really high. Uh, so it, it, it's a very difficult thing to adjust in terms of how, how do you change the mix in terms of smart farming 
uh, and reduce those emissions. There's countries that are in a similar boat to Ireland, notably New Zealand and Latin American countries like uh, Argentina and, and Uruguay, where they have big cattle herds. Um, so that, that's that's like in terms of the global context. So um, how you reduce emissions attached with dairy, attached to dairying at a time that we're expanding the dairying sector hugely and, and also beef. Um, and we have a grass-fed system that is very efficient as well, but still the emissions are very high. And that's and the also bit produces the, the kind of beef that um, uh, makes Irish beef very much so, yeah, yeah. Uh, sellable all over the world. Very yeah. much so. So the, the 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 need to find some tangible way of uh, achieving carbon neutral status—that's what we've committed to in under Paris in terms of agriculture, so that there'll be no rise in agricultural emissions. Unfortunately, our emissions from agriculture continue to rise. That said, farmers, you know, know where, where the market is and, and know, you know, what's going to be demanded of them more than most. Uh, so they're beginning to adjust now. But the scale of that is not is not sufficient yet to to achieve a, a really big carbon reduction. But smart farming, in terms of how you use fertilizer, in terms of what beef genetics you deploy, in terms of breed of animal. Uh, in terms of water use are beginning to be taken on board by some by significant numbers but that needs to be more widely adopted and then I think we there's a possibility that they will reduce carbon carbon emissions but it's particularly difficult in agriculture and and you know that that is acknowledged internationally uh, and the one interesting outcome out of bond was that that the Irish delegation uh, led by Dennis Nocton committed to uh, being a, a global leader in terms of uh, adopting the best techniques and technologies to reduce carbon in the agriculture sector, but also tied into land use because that's that's key because certain uh, certain uh, land use practices help reduce carbon, like forestry, for example. Um, so that has to be factored in as well. Okay, Kevin, thanks a lot for that. We'll leave you there for now. That's it for this week. For more on these and other stories, go to irishtimes.com. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now.